Hi everyone, Steve Shepard here with the Natural Curiosity Project. I'd like to read you something. We of this generation are the custodians and the trustees of our national heritage for the generations yet unborn. Looking back at the development of this country from the time our forefathers landed here, we blame them for not having conserved for us many of the natural resources of this country that we would wish were still intact for our use and enjoyment. It is our trust to see to it that our children's children shall not blame us for the failure to preserve for them those things and the resources that are left which they would wish to have and which it is still possible to preserve for them. Now, those are pretty powerful words, right? That quote sounds like something we would read in a journal 50 years from now, but it's not. It's the opening paragraph of an article entitled Wilderness and Aircraft, published in The Living Wilderness in the autumn issue of 1947. That's 73 years ago. It's the summary of a federal government committee's study of the impact of human noise on the country's wild places, a committee that included, among others, Olaus Murray, who was an outspoken advocate at the time for the preservation of the nation's wildlands, Aldo Leopold, a conservationist, naturalist, and of course the author of A Sound County Almanac, and Frederick Law Olmsted, a landscape architect who designed New York's Central Park, not to mention some of the country's most famous national parks, universities, and government buildings. In the 1940s, it was a new problem. You know, the idea of aircraft was something that this committee really was sitting back and saying, huh, okay, here where we've got a new player on the stage, something, an instrument we, that's part of this sort of uh, soundscape, some sound here that we had never really had to deal with before. Today, sound recordists around the world are on a mission to loudly express their concerns that human noise, anthropomorphic noise, grows louder and covers more geography with every passing year to the point that it's becoming nearly impossible to find any place on the planet where you can sit and hear the sounds of nature without an overlay of human noise. In this second podcast with David Betchkel, who's a senior bioacoustician for the National Park Service at Denali National Park in Alaska, I asked him to step away from the mechanics of being a bioacoustician and focus more philosophically on the need for quiet places and the responsibilities that we all have to protect them. Here's David. People often criticize the government for being slow or inefficient or whatever, but I mean, these are not trivial decisions most of the time. And so the amount of dedication and commitment that a lot of federal employees show in sort of their duty to unraveling and thinking about these difficult problems is sometimes kind of underappreciated, I feel. David actually makes a good point here. What is it exactly that we're protecting and preserving? I mean, here's one answer, cultural depth and richness. Alaska is home to 11 different cultures that speak 11 unique languages in 22 different dialects. This is what makes Alaska, well, Alaska. Of course, the geography and the wildlife are central to the place as well, and both deserve protection. But interwoven into the fabric of this place is the weave and the weft of all those human cultures. They're like the patterns of images that we see when we stare at a quilt. Richard Nelson is a naturalist and radio producer in Alaska and the host of the wonderful program Encounters. In his book, The Island Within, he says, What obligation is more binding than to protect the cherished, to defend whoever or whatever cannot defend itself, and to nurture in turn that which has given nourishment? I'm reminded of words written by John Seed, an Australian environmentalist. 
When he began considering these questions, he believed, I am protecting the rainforest. But as his thought evolved, he realized, I am part of the rainforest protecting myself. On the one hand, we want to protect our wild places, including the natural sounds that are so much a part of them. On the other hand, the human cultures that live in or near those wild places are every bit as important. For example, technology has arrived and has become incorporated into the Alaskan lifestyle. How did you know, combustion engines become incorporated in lifestyles in Alaska, many of which you know, we've got still extant in you know, the present day are native cultures that, that are called subsistence cultures. They live off the land. There's a book called Tracks in the Wildland by three anthropologists, whom I, and one of whom is actually a great sound recordist in his own right. And they basically showed that but the introduction of snow machines in some of these communities was enough to disrupt the transmission of oral history, and where traditionally uh, men and their sons would travel together on a dog sled and share the runners. One person would stand on the left runner, one person would stand on the right runner, and they would be able to, the older person would be able to point to something and say, here's a good spot to look for you know, this animal. Uh, and snow machine, communication is impossible because it's so loud and sometimes they're wearing a helmet. Um, so... You know, there is an interesting analysis of how this sort of incorporation of technology can also disrupt. And I would be very hesitant to say that there's any, you know, one-dimensional take on what technology is always bad or technology is always good or whatever. And that's something that, but it is something of great interest to me. And this is what makes this issue so complicated. We have to be careful about what kind of rural or, you know, these sorts of lifestyles in Alaska that what do we mean to protect? You know, what are the kind of things, because they're not just subsistence users, they're folks who are living in all sorts of rural communities scattered across the state. And so I, I think a lot about that. Like, what are the things we value? Like, you, you like to hear the sound of peepers. And I had a, a powerful experience in a cabin I lived in in this community of Healy for a while where it was, I realized, I just was struck dumb one day. I was cooking dinner, and I had the window open, and I could hear the sound of wild grass moving and swishing against itself. It was dried. It was fall, and the grass was moving and swaying and kind of shh, shh, I said, I've never lived in a house where I can hear the sound of grass moving from inside of my house. And I was like, that's important. This is one of the reasons I live here. <laughs> so this begs a question. Given that we have to walk a line between conservation and preservation, what's the role of the park itself? I mean, why is Denali here? And more importantly, how does this make the work that David and his colleagues do with sound so important? The sounds of a park are full of all sorts of wonderful enjoyment that most people don't know how to approach. So as soon as you can sort of tell a story like that about a a sound and describe a little bit more about what you're hearing Suddenly that unlocks a way for people to relate to the place and to uh, have a deeper love of the place. It makes you, makes you care about it more, you know. Uh, and recorders can do a great job of that because most of the time people can't sit still for a month and pay attention to every time and a single organism might vocalize. So you can study, oh, yeah, here's when animals start calling like a wood frog. Here's when they stop calling at the end of the season. And when, when is their peak of their calling, that sort of stuff, which believe it or not, was actually pretty hard to do before this time. The other things, amazing things, you know. So back in 1973, there were three researchers at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, among them Leonard J. Payton, who's a classic recordist in the state of Alaska, and he really started things off. Uh, 
I mean, back in the day, he was using a reel-to-reel tape recorder or Nagris 3 tape recorder, and he would, uh, you know, he had a hostess thing around all over the mountains, including here in Denali. Anyways, uh, his team found out that you could identify not even uh, subspecies, but you could go down to these things they call metapopulations, so essentially like groups of animals that are just sort of separated by physical space from each other, and they form slightly different populations. You could identify different metapopulations of white-crowned sparrows by parts of their song. By using an analysis of the song, you could separate them into two metapopulations. And what's amazing is I go back through my records today, and I still see that. And so then you start to ask questions, okay, can you tell where the boundary of those metapopulations is changing? You know, so spatial questions that previously were essentially unanswerable. So David and his colleagues walk a very interesting line. On the one hand, they're focused on preserving the wildness, if you will, of Denali and to a greater extent, Alaska. On the other hand... My sense of duty as a government employee, I often am considering the irreversible consequences of actions. I think that maybe is in some form of justice or whatever it is that you're working in, that sort of legal framework... It's your, really your duty to consider, like, what kind of things, what kind of repercussions might this have, what kind of consequences uh, that, that might unfold. And so I think just being aware of them is something that we spend quite a lot of time thinking about. Joseph Cornell, writing in Listening to Nature, makes an interesting observation about how we experience nature. He says, no matter where we are or what we're doing, the key to experiencing the heightened state of awareness that often comes to the mountaineer is to keenly and narrowly concentrate our attention. If you're going out in, into the, a wild place, you might imagine that you kind of could have two different types of attention, and, and these are pretty well recognized. There's uh, so stimulus-based attention, which is sort of when you're redirecting your attention towards a novel stimulus. It's, it's, you know, it's sort of somewhat distracted or startled you know, responses. But, I mean, it can be real positive, too. You're trying to pay attention to lots of different things, and you're moving around. You're kind of paying attention to things. I think a lot of us sort of live our day-to-day lives in, in this stimulus-based attention. We kind of go from one thing to the next thing, and somebody calls on the phone. You pick up the phone, that sort of thing, you know. One of the types of things I think parks really offer as an interesting opportunity is is a chance to sort of disconnect from a lot of those sort of stimulus-based mindsets. And then you can move towards what's called goal-directed attention. And I think it's really, basically, you could put in air quotes something like enjoyment, you know, like that you're enjoying resources by directing your attention towards a small set of inputs, you know. You're sort of focusing on things and you're you're sort of getting a sense of presence in that landscape. You're, you have sort of a deep, developed input that's sort of going into paying attention. So someone sits out in there, say, like in Denali, Wonder Lake. You spend a, a morning in Wonder Lake, and you're, you're hearing the loons calling, and you're watching the mist moving over the lake. Well, that's a great thing that can happen in the context of quietude. And so I've been thinking a lot more about those sorts of experiences in parks. I'm glad you're up there doing your work, David. We all are. And I'd like to end with a quote that you read to me from Aldo Leopold. To promote perception is the only true creative part of recreational engineering. Recreational development is not a job building roads into the lovely country, but of building receptivity into the still unlovely human mind. If you'd like to know more about David's work, please visit the National Park Service website and search for David's name. It's spelled D-A-V-Y-D-B-E-T-C-H-K-A-L.
I'm Steve Shepard for the Natural Curiosity Project. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.